If you could open it please to Ephesians 4. A couple of things to look out real quick before we pray and get started. Uh, let me see here. Yes, we only have three, three of these booklets left. Three of the Ephesians 4 booklets. We can print more, but if you'd like one today, that's great. Just to give you an idea of what we've done is we've created space in the text so that you can actually mark it up and given you an entire page, the opposite of that for notes. So would anybody like that today? Okay. Yeah, thank you for raising your hand. Anybody else? My self-esteem is based on this. Okay. Anybody? Good. Oh, there you go. Yeah. One more? Anybody? God, thank you. Yes. I'm a winner. All right. And if anybody needs a copy of the Word, just let me know. Raise your hand. We can get you a copy of the Bible. If you don't own a copy for yourself, we want to give it to you as a gift. It's yours to take. We want you to know God's Word. Everybody good? So make sure. Okay. So let's take a moment. Let's pray before we get into our time. Father, we thank You that we can open Your inspired Word. Lord, let us not take this time for granted, but let us make the most of the time given. We thank You right now for the freedoms that we have to own this Bible in abundance. We praise You for all that You want to pour into our lives through it. We're thankful, Lord, for those of us that believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I know that He is ready to receive the Word and to so transform our lives by it being added to us that we would be different people. God, I pray that we came ready to be different today. And I pray, Father, that You would give us the focus and that You would prompt us to not want to leave the words on the page, but to digest them for everything that they are worth. So we trust You in this time to illuminate it to our understanding and that it take root in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Ephesians. Is this not going to work today? Oh. Let's see here. A second, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Sometimes a, a reboot is all you need. Sometimes for me it's just a boot, but that's a different story. Ephesians 4, you have in your bulletins a singular page that says notes. I'm going to ask a lot of you today. Number one, please take notes. Number two, don't leave your notes in your Bible. Have them ready. Have them, have them look over them at least once, please, this week. Number three, if you have any questions, I will do the best of my ability to try to answer them, but what we're covering today is mostly beyond comprehension. We are just incredible blessed people that we're going to even get to know it somewhat. So it's good and wonderful stuff. So, everybody raise your right hand. And if your left hand happens to be on your Bible, that's fitting. I promise, before the Lord, it's getting serious, Okay that I will at least look over this material once. So help me God. Amen. That's good. Excellent. Okay, good. Now you're all accountable. 
Feed her to the fire. Let's pick up in verse 1 of here. Remember, this is a shift. The first three chapters is doctrine. The last three chapters is how do you apply that doctrine or why should it matter? Let me explain this briefly. You have to know before you can grow. You have to grab your position in Christ before you will ever practice anything righteous. If you don't have chapters 1, 2, and 3 in your heart, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are a waste of time. Because then you end up with cavalier Christianity. And what cavalier Christianity is, is it's a lot of, I think this will do a good job. I think this would work well. Well, I think this is going to work. And we find that our thinking has been separated from the doctrine of the Bible. That's a problem. Because it's just me with good intentions. Me with good intentions is sin. Please understand that. Because I'm always choosing bad things. Why? Because I may have good intentions, but they're still in the flesh. The flesh cannot please God. We're told that very plainly. John 6.63, Jesus says it. The flesh cannot please God. And so whatever I'm doing has to be in the Spirit. How is something in the Spirit? If I am taking the doctrine of the Bible that I'm receiving, don't be scared of the word doctrine, it just means teaching. What does the Bible teach me? If I'm taking the doctrine of the Bible and I'm getting it into my head, and I am praying, Lord, please add this to my understanding so that I begin to live, or think of it this way, Lord, may I grow in the experiential knowledge, we've talked about this before, the epignosis of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that I would walk in a manner worthy. That's Colossians 1, 9, and 10. The prayer is, help me to get it from my head to my heart. And the great thing is, is that the Spirit of God runs a perfect train. He is able to get it from here and on down in here so that it starts to come out here and here. And all of a sudden, I begin living a life, you begin living a life that starts to look more and more like the Lord Jesus. It's a life full of faith. It's a life, nothing that is required of me, it is a grace life. And it's a grace life because it's God doing all the work through us. It's not us pulling ourselves by our bootstraps and trying to muster the best that we could possibly do because I'm doing it for the Lord. If you grit your teeth in serving Jesus, it's wrong. It's got to be by grace. It is a glorious rest and what He has already said is true. The only thing that needs to happen is I need to receive the Word. I need to appropriate the Word by faith and praise God I have a man inside that's going to do that for me. I don't have to do it. So that is the joys of this. So this is why He says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I'm begging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Why? Because you can. You just need to submit and do it. It's possible. He's not asking anything that's not possible. He knows it's possible because He's the one that's going to bring it about. He's really not calling us, you better step up to the plate on this one, son. He's not doing that. That's called legalism. That's religion. And that's other churches, not us. He is calling us to just trust me in this. All that I ask of you, I will give you the grace to do it because I will be doing it through you. That's it. It's like as simple as putting a baseball mitt on a baseball player's hand. Who caught the ball? The mitt? We don't know, do we? Hmm, 
If that's the only thing you get from this, I'm in super trouble, okay? But think about that. You're out in right field. Here it comes. Bam! Did the mitt catch the ball? Technically, it did. Could the mitt have done anything if the player's hand was not moving it? Nothing. Welcome to Christianity. This is it. We are simply the mitt put on the baseball player's glove, and when that ball comes, the Lord... Now, what if the mitt was like, I'm not opening up for nothing? Then you got a baseball player with the black eye, and a lot of times that's how we live our lives. How many times have we blamed Jesus for problems when the real issue was is we weren't submissive to what he had for us in his word? Well, why didn't God do this? Well, you haven't been to church in probably 25 years. Let's start there because that's a symptom of a much worse problem, the fact that you don't believe that God has actually told you the truth in the Word. Now that sounds callous and harsh, but let's just cut through it and be honest. The root has got issues. And so we address that, and when that gets healthy, all of a sudden the fruit comes. Why? Because a person's no longer worried about, yes, I subscribe to Christianity, or yes, I'm a member at that church, or I got baptized one time. It's a whole idea of I'm now living a life that has trusted God beyond the fact of the most major need I ever had, and that was the fact that His Son alone could save me from hell. It's actually letting Christ live His life out through us. Different way of thinking. The world does not teach us this way. The world teaches us, try your best and you will accomplish much. God teaches us, trust me most, and there's nothing I cannot do through you. It's a grace life. Everybody good? Okay, so that's why he's calling us to walk this walk. Because he's going to do it through us. Now notice there's an attitude that we need to have with it. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Love is the oil, the motivator that runs us forward. Being diligent, and this is so important. Being diligent, strive, work for it, scrape for it. I thought you said we weren't supposed to work for things. Position yourself with this target always in mind. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me give you a reason why, Paul says. There's one body and there's one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, here's a quick review of what we've seen so far. Two Sundays ago, we did the first five. Last Sunday, we dealt with the whole situation of baptism, and hopefully from what the New Testament teaches, that's a little bit clearer for everybody. So, number one, one body. There's no other assembly. It's Christ's body. The church is a brand new thing. was never revealed in the Old Testament, but all of a sudden in Acts chapter 2, everybody recognized that God was doing something different. So it's Christ's body. Number two, it's one Spirit, and that's God the Holy Spirit. As in previous times, the Holy Spirit could come upon people, and also the Lord would remove His Spirit off of people. Just look at the life of Saul, and you will see that happen. And I don't know what happened in that situation, but in Psalm 51, David writes about his sin with Bathsheba, and he writes about his repentance and confession at that time. And he says something very interesting, Lord, please do not remove your Spirit from me as you did from Saul. I think that maybe David saw that happen, and I think it probably scared the dickens out of him. Can you imagine seeing somebody who the Spirit of God is upon them, leading their every move, and then all of a sudden you see something change drastically as God says, you've been so disobedient no more. That's interesting. 
The thankful thing about the church and why the church is so different is because the Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon us or off of us. We're filled with the Spirit when we've confessed our sins. We've used 1 John 1, 9. We've confessed our sins. He is faithful and just. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's everything that we didn't remember. So later on when you're going, gosh, I didn't confess it. It's okay. God knew you didn't know at the time. He took care of it because he understands who we are. Okay? But when that happens, we're filled with the Spirit at that moment. When we sin in our relationship with him and we're not confessing it immediately, that's when we've lost this filling of the spirit, the supernatural ability to now operate according on God's terms because God is living his life through us. But the indwelling Holy Spirit never goes anywhere. Once you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is placed within you as a permanent residence and he is there to begin cleaning house from the inside out because he loves you that much. So those are the two differences between that. We now have the indwelling Holy Spirit that can never be lost. Filling of the Spirit, and we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get further on in chapter 4 in 2026. But filling of the Spirit fluctuates a little bit. Indwelling of the Spirit never goes. Why does the filling of the Spirit fluctuate? Because if we persist in sin and we're stubborn and we're not confessing our sin, God is letting us go in that way in broken fellowship with Him, even though the relationship is permanently super glued together supernaturally. So hopefully we understand that. Number three, one hope. Our hope, our calling is that we as believers in Christ are God's inheritance. I'm not going to ask you because of how long it takes me to recover when you don't know. So I'm just going to tell you this week, okay? It's devastating for me. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Number four, there's one Lord. There's only one Lord. That's Jesus our promised Messiah, the only one who was perfect enough to die and pay for every sin of all time, past, present, and future, doesn't matter. He took care of all the problem. Number five, there's one faith. There's only one way that you can access this glorious end. By faith. Anything other than faith ends up being works to try to earn God's favor. We immediately find ourselves out of the grace category, into the religion category, and we got a whole heap of problems because now we got to earn it, run it, keep going, and we wear out, and we can't do it. We are ridiculously broken. And last week, there is only one baptism by the Spirit into Christ and His body. The Holy Spirit, at the moment of faith, takes us and submerges us into the death of Christ. We have died to the old us, and has now raised us to a brand new life, and the Spirit is the one who does that, immerses us into the body of Christ, as you see now. That is something that happens instantaneously now. I'm going to seek to go slow. I also have a ton of slides. Right now it says I probably got about 48 slides, okay? So stick with me. We're already seven in. Only 41. We're good, okay? There's only one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you remember this, this is our chiasm. This passage is set up in such a way as to where the Holy Spirit inspired Paul. I want you to structure this in such a way as to where there are parallels that run, but they meet in one beautiful, big idea I want you to get, and that's the fact that there's only one Lord. And so when we speak about there's only one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, this is paralleled with the idea that there is only one body of Christ. The thrust here is unity, unity, unity. Why should I strive for unity with my brothers and sisters? Because everything about God is unified. And even when it's spelled out in seven different ideas or seven different directions, all of it is still 
a whole of one. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Pause for a second and ask this question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Don't answer. Just think. I'm not talking about our relationship to God. I'm talking about when we try to think of what God is like. What does that happen? Or what does that mean? How do, how, how do we, how do we, how do you grab God here? The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. He's using that not in a works term, but as in a belief term. And mankind's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. That would be the real question to ask here. Do I think high thoughts of God or do I think low thoughts of God? Do I really believe everything that God tells me in His Word that He can do? Do I really believe that the Bible is His Word? There's a lot to entertain about how we think about God and the difference that it could make and how we live above this life rather than struggling in the midst of this life. There's only one God. The first thing we need to understand is that there is certainty of His existence. This is probably where notes need to start happening. I want to introduce to you this. This is what's known as the pure actuality of God. Pure actuality. It's the idea that that which exists with no potential of not existing. So when we say that something is actual, you are actually sitting in a chair. That chair is actual. It exists. It is here. Here's a question. Was there a time that that chair did not exist? Yes. Do you think there'll be a time when that chair doesn't exist? And you say, Pastor, I don't care. I'm going to be raptured. Exactly. That's exactly the good answer. But there will probably come a time when that thing won't happen. In fact, we know from 2 Peter 3 that all things are going to burn. I'm going to imagine these chairs are going to be in there as well. All things are going to burn in the end. That's how the end of the world is going to happen. So there's going to come a time when that doesn't go on. Here's an example of actuality. Restaurants. I heard before I moved here, you guys had a Wendy's. Is that true? How does Wendy's not stay in business? Lousy food? What happened? Lousy service. I kind of believe that just from frequenting other joints around here. Hey man, you find a good place to go and somebody's going to treat you nice? Praise the Lord, that's great. Somebody like, I'm working today. I love the people who are like, I can't wait till I get off. I'm like, good grief, me either. Gosh. Everybody... Work your job and love it or don't. Stop. Whatever. Good grief. Restaurants come and go, yes? Okay. They're actual, but only for a time. Israel. There was a time when Israel wasn't a nation. Then all of a sudden, God calls Abraham and calls him to go to a land that he will show him. And shows him. That's Kentucky grammar for you. Show him. And all, and lets him know, through you is going to come this incredible blessing. There was a time when Israel didn't exist, now it exists and it will exist forever. There was a time that the church didn't exist. All of a sudden in Acts chapter 2, God's doing something new. Now the church is actual, it's actually here. But there was a time before that it didn't. There's a time when the earth didn't exist. Now it does exist. And there will come a time when all of it burns up and will be done and there will be a new heavens and the new earth. The earth as we know it will be gone. It will not be actual anymore. All these things have actuality to them, but not in a pure form. 
All of these exist or have previously existed, but they do not exist purely. Why? Because they do not exist forever. Only God is eternal. Therefore, he's the only one that exists. He is the only one of his kind that could possibly exist. Because when you have two eternal, all-time beings with free will, those free wills will come into conflict somewhere, and therefore, one must win over the other. One was not supreme, one was not sovereign, one was not superior, and therefore you have one that ceases to exist in the purity that they should have. So when we talk about the existence of God, His actuality is always untainted, not just by time past or time future, because time is irrelevant to God. The only reason why He instituted time for us is so we could see how cool prophecy is. That's really what it boils down to. When he tells us that the tribulation is going to last for seven years, he dates that time for us so we know exactly what's going on. And when we're all raptured, people will look at our Bibles and say, oh my gosh, this is what's going to happen. I think that's an awesome, awesome thing. God is not tainted by sin and he's not bound by time. So therefore his actuality is pure because he's always been. Well, who created God? No one created God. God is uncreated creator. We have the reactions and we are here. We are evidence of his handiwork. He knit us carefully in the womb because you have to have someone who is unmade in order to perpetuate all things that are made. If not, then you have to ask the question, well, who made God? See, this is a problem with the evolution debate. This is a problem with the whole idea of the Big Bang. You don't understand, preacher. Everything was gathered together as it was in a period on a printed page and then all of a sudden it exploded. Two questions. Why did it explode and who put that period there? No one can answer that. When Richard Dawkins, the world's leading atheist, was pressed for this, he said, well, there must, finally, there must have been aliens somewhere who did this. So you did have to have an outside cause in order to make this go forward. Regardless if they're aliens or not, here's one thing that I know. They don't have pure actuality. Only God has that. Hebrews 11.6, turn there with me if you will. Can everybody see that white on blue? Is that good or no? Man. Darker. Okay. Darker. I thought I'd try it. I knew you'd tell me the truth. That's good. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 6. Here is evidence for the pure actuality of God, scripturally speaking. And without faith, that's on our end, It is impossible to please God. Now pause. Think of the implication of that real quick. That means that the best choice I could possibly make in my life is to live by faith all the time. How do you do that? You know the Word. You appropriate the Word. Allow the Holy Spirit to do His work. You begin living the Word. That's how you do that. Notice it says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must, notice the very first thing it brings up, believe that He is. Believe his existence. The fact that he does exist as the sovereign creator of all things and everything else is a creature. God was not previously a person who over time, because they were a really good, good person while they were here or whatever, eventually became a king or eventually became a god. It's not a progressive thing. It's not an evolutionary thing. It's the fact that he is the creator of all things. We are all his creatures and therefore everybody is answerable to him. See, the reason why we love evolution is because it removes personal responsibility and it allows us all to be a victim. We're not responsible for what has happened. I could not help myself. It was my little brother. I hear that all the time from my son. Well, you don't understand. He, stop. What did you do? All of a sudden, we don't want to talk. 
we're just like that. We're just like that. Notice, they believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, any that would seek after God, obviously they're believing in the existence of a God, and in doing so, he will reward that seeking by revealing more of himself to them. Here's another interesting point, is the fact that one God, he is unified. He has complete unity within himself. This is the Shema. You don't have to turn there. We're just going to look at this one part, but you can jot it down. Deuteronomy 6.4, commonly said throughout Jewish circles all of the time. In fact, they used to have in the doorways of their house, in the inner doorways on the right-hand part of the doorway, they had a little box that was there. You can actually find these on eBay or something. They're called mezuzahs. Uh, M-E Zuza. I don't know how to spell it, okay? But anyway, and they would have these scriptures that were wrapped up in there, of which Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 was one of them. And any time that they would go out of the doorway, and sometimes you'll see this on the chosen, they'll depict this, they'll come up and they'll pat that, that box before they walk through in order to remind them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one, and how the Lord will take care of them, and how they had a responsibility to train up families who know the Lord. Well, they would do that. The Shema means to hear. It was daily recited, but it's also an evidence of what's considered monotheism. What is monotheism? Monotheism is one God. There's only one. Mono, one. If any of you ever have mono, that's only one sickness that you got there. Does that make sense? No, that doesn't connect that way. If you've ever, uh, some of you fogies, if you ever listen to anything, honey, come here. We got a mono stereo now. That kind of thing, one channel. That's all it was, okay? So you're listening to that. But that's opposed to the idea of polytheism, meaning that there are many gods. Now, are there many little g-gods going around? Yes, but they're all creations. They're not the creator. So even the Jews, anciently speaking, believed in one God. They were a monotheistic people. Notice God is one being and not many beings. Here's some evidences. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God... Created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The word God there is the word Elohim. So when we deal with the idea of E-L-L, that's a singular that you're dealing with in the Hebrew. But when you get to the end of it and you see the heme, the I-M, Hebrew often uses the I-M as we would use in English, the S, in order to pluralize something. I'm going to explain that in just a second, okay? Singular, plural, put together in one cohesive. But the fact is, it's all unified with no contradiction. So when we deal with this idea, that's what we're dealing with language-wise. Deuteronomy 33.22. There is none like the God of Jeshurun. That's God's pet name for Israel. You ever looked at a couple and been like, I wonder what their pet names are for each other? Me either, because that's creepy, right? You don't do that. But notice that God here, we know his pet name for Israel is Jeshurun. Notice, who rides on the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. It's all this idea of a singular Unified God that's coming after them. How about this? 2 Samuel 7.22. For this reason you are great, O Adonai Yahweh, Master Lord idea. For there is none like you. There is no God. There's no Elohim besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. He's the only God who speaks forward truth. Each of these stresses, God is a single and superior creator. Now you're saying, okay, the unity of God, we understand that idea, but wait a second, I thought God is a trinity. Absolutely, he is a trinity. How do those things work together? Here we go. The word one in Deuteronomy 6, 4 is ikad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, okay? Which means one in the same, or it can mean a complex one, 
Now you say, why in the world does that matter? Number one, it stresses unity. But it stresses unity as a whole from something that might not necessarily have been unified before. Now in God's case, that's not the situation, but let me give you some scriptural examples of what we see. Uh, Versus quote, a careful analysis of Ikad in the Hebrew Scriptures clarifies that the term signifies unity in the context of plurality. Sprinkled throughout the text of the Torah, that's the first five books, and the Tanakh, that's the entire Old Testament put together, monotheism is conceptualized as a unity of persons equal in nature and essence, but with differing activities. So, here's some examples of that. First, God called the light day, and in the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Ikad, day. Ikad day was made up of what? Evening and morning. Evening and morning, when you put them together, you have one day. So notice, you have this plurality of things, but they so harmonize together in a way that they're considered unified. Everybody see that? How about this one? We can relate to this one. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Real quick, all you guys under 30 who are married, leave your father and your mother. Cut that cord. Move on, Jack. Be done. Soapbox. And back to this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You would never go to my wife and call her Jeremy. You see what I'm saying? That'd be silly. But the fact that every married couple is considered one flesh, it's a plurality that has a perfect unity. Ikad, one. That's how it works. Now when we talk about the fact that God is one, we see that God is both one and plural without contradiction. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. If there were some contradiction in the plurality of God, You could not say they were one. Why? Because you've got something straying off in some direction that is not in harmony and can't be constituted as one as the rest are. Is everybody with me? Okay, I'm getting some really awesome... None of you are sleeping, which is great. I can't remember the last time that happened. Okay, even Chuck's awake. It's really good. So, moving on here. Love you, just kidding. God is three and one in different senses. He is three persons, but He has only one essence or one nature. Therefore, it is not a contradiction, since it does not affirm that there are three persons and yet only one person in God, or that there are three natures and yet only one nature in Him. Those are contradictions, because you're saying there's three here and there's one here. A is not non-A, period. We could all stand in class and logic in our educational systems right now to figure that out. You cannot have those things because they are contradictions and people are trying to tell me now that two and two is five. That doesn't become true. That just makes them look dumb. Okay? Logic is very serious. So, notice it says here, now there can be three persons and yet only one nature is a mystery, but it's certainly not a contradiction. So you're probably familiar with this. This is from Basic Theology and Charles Ryrie. But this is one of the best ways to understand it. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. However, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. Why? Because each one of these are distinct persons. Not contradictory persons. They're each distinct persons. But they are all unified in their very essence that you have. So, 
When we talk about this, we talk about how can they be three persons? Well, here's the reason why. Because personhood, when we talk about what constitutes a person, a person is made up of three things that really make them an individual. What is that? Well, they have their own intellect. They have a means of thinking on their own. They have a volition of how they choose to exercise that intellect or not exercise that intellect. The choice is theirs. And they also have an emotion that is often accompanied with receiving or giving out information. A person is made up of the mind, will, and emotions. We understand that from our studies as the soul. We're made up of spirit, soul, and body. And what constitutes the soul? Mind, will, emotions. Well, God has a mind, will, and emotions involved. Each person of the Trinity can think, can choose, and can feel. Don't you think it's incredible that when Jesus comes across a situation where Lazarus dies, it says he wept? Why didn't Jesus just step back and be like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, ain't no big deal. I got this. I mean, the next thing he does is he moves forward, right? Roll away the stone. I love the King James, but Lord, he stinketh. I love that one. It's been four days. Why did Jesus wait four days? Because he knew by the time the decomposition set in, he was going to raise a rotting dead man and restore him completely to life right in front of their eyes. He's going to prove that he's God. Miracles are real. He can do it. I think it's incredibly interesting. But he weeps over that situation. Jesus actually cries when he's coming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often you stone the prophets and kill those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing and you weren't willing. He is grieving at that point over Israel's condition. It's amazing that our God is so emotional and personal, yet emotional perfectly in those situations. So notice, however, these three persons will never think, choose, or feel independent of or in contradiction with the other persons. This is because they're one in essence. You're never going to find, and this is a sad thing about what some denominations have done, you're never going to find that the Holy Spirit is doing some crazy new thing over here and the Father and the Son are like, what's He doing over there? That's how we act about like our children. You know? What in the world... What in the world are you thinking? Where in the world did you get that from? That's because somehow their mind, will, and emotions have gotten out of thinking of what might have been taught in the home. And so we understand there's something that's veering off in left field. In fact, we have a whole phrase for that. Left field on that type of idea. The Trinity is never in left field. The persons of the Trinity are never operating in such a way as to where the others are caught by surprise or doing something that is out of sync, out of harmony, out of being the conglomerate whole that they are to where all of a sudden there's confusion that takes place. It never happens that way. This is what makes them one in essence. So when we talk about one's essence, it's defined as their essential characteristics. And if you go through the Bible and you're familiar with some of the scriptures you're thinking about or what you know about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know that the Trinity does not possess characters that are not true of the other two individuals involved. Is Jesus Christ God? Yes, He is. Can Jesus Christ raise the dead? Can God raise the dead? Yeah, in fact, what's interesting to that is when Jesus died bodily, it says it was the power of the Father that raised him from the dead. Yet what did the Son say to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth! And here he comes, hopping out in his bandages and actually making himself known. He can do that. Notice that it's the power that they both have in the situation. We would say that they are omnipotent in those situations. That's the big $5 Jeopardy word to use for that. But here's what's amazing about it. They're never in contradiction with one another. 
those powers are the same amongst it what they would have. They still have perfect knowledge of every situation. They can still bring perfect comfort in every situation. Even though the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter, do you realize that in 1 John 2, Jesus Christ is also called the Comforter. It's not that, you know, well, God, the Father, Father, sit this one out real quick because the Spirit's a way better comforter than we are. Let's send Him to go do that. You don't have those conversations within the Trinity. You just don't have it. Do we see that they have different roles and functions that they are taking care of? Yes, but they're never doing it in contradiction with what the others are doing. It's all perfectly done. A plurality that is perfectly unified in such a way that I can't even begin to grasp My mind wants to become a tortilla just so I can wrap it around there. Maybe I'm hungry. I don't know. Moving on. Now, one thing that we don't want to think is this. I know I'm bringing a lot up to you, but I I want to give you like, don't veer in this direction, don't veer in this direction, which is the idea of modalism. It's a false teaching that tries to logically reconcile unity and trinity. Somebody can sit down, they can read the Bible, and they say, well, the Bible is unified, and I see that God is unified on the pages, but I also see that there is a trinity because both the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have claims ascribed to them that they are, in fact, God. How do you reconcile this? Well, one of the wrong ways that this went was something called modalism, or if you're familiar with this, it's called Sibelianism, is what it used to be called. But today we probably know a branch of this more commonly is oneness Pentecostalism. Has anybody ever heard of that? If you're familiar with T.D. Jakes, everybody familiar with him? T.D. Jakes believes this, and here's what it is. Modalism teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were merely different descriptions or different modes of the same person. In other words, one in essence, yes. But three persons, no. In fact, what you have is at the beginning of the Old Testament, the Father really makes Himself known. And then all of a sudden, the Father kind of steps off the scene a little bit so that the Son can come forward because the Father has now changed modes and become the Son. And then after that, when we deal with like Acts chapter 2, the Son has now gone off the scene and now we're changing modes to the Holy Spirit. And that's the form of God that we have now. One person, and this is the heresy that you drop into when you try to make that happen. So modalism, not good. It would also mean that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot be eternal. You you can't sit here and say the Father exists forever. Why? Because the Father eventually became the Son, so He had to stop existing at some point in order for the Son to come on on the scene. And then the Son is not eternal. He had to come off the scene so that the Holy Spirit could do that. Well, the Holy Spirit's not eternal either because He had to wait for the Son to transform into the Holy Spirit in order to make that go. It doesn't work. It violates the eternal nature of of God. It violates pure actuality that He's always been and He's always existed. If that's the case, then you really have no one that's created anything and you have no one really running the show from the get-go. It destroys those things. So, the idea of the Trinity, how should we think about it? God is perfect plurality, three persons, and also perfect unity. Now, everybody think back to our chiasm. Does everybody see the Trinity in our chiasm? Notice that they're all brought up the fact that there's oneness. That oneness that they're talking about there is the essence, the essential characteristics that are going on, and they're not in contradiction with one another. Yet, notice that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is led to develop out into three persons. One in essence, three persons. Scripture over and over and over testifies to the fact of the Trinity. Now, I know I normally joke about this, but this is true. That was my introduction to the sermon. There is one God and Father. 
We understand that there's one God unified. We understand that he's always existed. We understand that he exists in three persons, yet he is one in essence, one in nature. But notice this, John 1.4, you don't have to turn for this one, but I'm going to have you turn the next one. Think about this real quick, what he says, because they're talking about in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so it's taking Father, Son, putting them on an equal playing field with one another. That's how John's trying to describe the coming of Jesus, the incarnation. But notice here he says something very interesting. In Him, let me make sure this doesn't mess up here. Good grief. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men, saved or unsaved. And how do we know that? Because He is the giver of life. Why is He the Father? Because He is paternally your life giver, whether you know Jesus or not. How do we know that? Because we all started out not knowing Him. Everybody understand that? Everybody in this room was unsaved at one point. We even had life at that point. This is talking about the physical life that we have. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 17. This is very interesting. Acts 17 is one of my favorites. If I've wore you out on this, I apologize. But I want to show you something very interesting because this is when Paul is talking to the people who were worshiping an unknown God. Everybody remember that one? I walked around here. They're worshiping everything under the sun. I even found an altar to the unknown God. And so therefore, what you don't know that you're worshiping, I want to tell you who this unknown God is. And he uses it as a perfect doorway to be able to explain who Yahweh, the creator of all things, is. And that's where he starts with Gentiles because they're pagans. They don't have a Jewish background of an almighty creator. They have philosophical whatnots going on back and forth that would rival the National Enquirer, okay? They don't have this creator base, and so Paul has to establish that. So look at verse 24 where it starts here. Notice what he says. The God who made the world and all things in it. Notice, he's the creator. He made the world and he made everything that inhabits the world. Look what he says here. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people, here it is, why is he the Father? Life and breath and all things. The reason why you and I can inhale at this moment is because God allowed it to happen. Sometimes we don't realize how we won't, Life is just a breath. Think about that. That's incredible. So this is how Paul starts to begin to correct their thinking about all this paganism that they've been covered in. Notice verse 26 says, And he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, when they would be born, when they would come about, and where they would live. You are where you are because God set it up this way. Praise God he brought you to Wisconsin, right? That's a good thing. Praise the Lord. It's way better than Indiana. You don't know until you've been there. You have Quick Trip. Kentucky's got sweet tea. All right. Verse 27. Why did he do that? That they would seek God. Notice that as a father, he set his creation up in the best time and place possible for one reason. Because when he understood everything that would unfold in their life, this was the opportunity, the maximum potential they would have to come to know him. 
God wants every single person to know Him because they are all His special creations. That's how much He loves them. That they would seek Him. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of them. Why? For in Him we live and move and exist. Now that was one of their poets in that time that he's quoting from to show them that he knows their paganism as well. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Any sin of culture that goes on, look for the truth in that sin. Always look for the truth in that sin. Because it always reveals something about God bubbling to the surface that we can't keep down. Let me give you a prime example of this predominantly, not all the time, but mostly speaking, when you're dealing with homosexual couples, you will usually have someone who takes on a more masculine role and a more feminine role. Why? I don't understand that. If it was truly a man and a man being together, then shouldn't they both have nothing but masculine roles? And sometimes you do find that going on. And if it's a woman and a woman, they both usually have effeminate roles. But you usually find, most of the time, not all the time, I'm not speaking exclusively, but if you just observe or you talk or you spend time hanging out and learning more, you find that one has taken on the behavior of a opposite sex relationship. That just testifies to the design of God that you can't get away from. Because if it was truly in that type of situation, two dudes should have no problem being dudes. It just seems to make sense to me. I don't understand it. But there's something about us that we can't keep the design of God out of the situation. It bubbles to the surface and it makes itself known. It's the same way with this right here. Notice, we live and move and have our existence. The existence of Him or the the, the, the handiwork, His fingerprints are everywhere. You can find it everywhere. As even some of our own poets, your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Guys were writing poetry at that time that was saying we are children of our maker. That's the pagan heart that is godless testifying to the existence of an almighty. Paul uses this as an apologetic, as a defense why they should believe this, that he is the father of all. Now notice how he turns this because he brings, he brings the truth to the surface. As it says here, uh, for we also are his children, verse 29. Being then the children of God, notice that he doesn't design that. Why? Because we're created in his image. Okay? God created us in his image. Look what it says. We ought not to think, there's where it starts, the problem. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. In other words, your mind can't capture him, so stop trying to conceptualize him in all of your doing. That's not how you deal with the divine nature. He can't be an idol. The next one, he's not only one God, but he's also over all and through all and in all. This is what is known as the immensity of God. You're getting your money's worth today. Here we go. God is beyond being measured. No one is ever going to get out their Stanley tape measure and be like, yep, 26 feet. It's not going to happen. He is unlimited by anything. Neither is he subject to spatial confinements. But he is everywhere present at every point in both space and time, yet he is beyond space and time. Here's a question. Is God here? Now don't pull the whole, well, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is here in our midst. That has nothing to do with us gathering together as the church body. He's here because he's omnipresent. Okay, this, that, that subject right there that I just quoted from you is dealing with church discipline issues. And it's talking about whether he approves or disapproves those situations going on in the body of Christ. The fact is he's omnipresent. 
He's everywhere. Did anybody have to move over out of your seat in order to make room for him so he could sit down? No, that would be silly. Why? Because he's not contained by spatial confinements. Because we had to open the doors and get God in here, nobody had to sit outside, right? So notice it's the fact that he is absolutely immense beyond being measured. He is fully present with us, and yet he is not spatially confined. It's the same with time and space. He existed forever before he ever decided to say, let there be light before he ever spoke the world into existence and out of nothing created everything, he existed for infinite numbers of what we can't even comprehend because there is no way to measure that. That's because he is eternally greater than any timeline we could ever concoct. I think this is the reason why John says, in the beginning, he gives you a time. What's the next word? No? That's, that's Genesis 1.1. I'm talking about John 1.1. In the beginning was, stop, in the beginning, a time, was, previous to that, past tense. Everybody see that? In the beginning, as far back as you can think, go back and just a little niche farther. That's the idea, a scotch. Go a scotch farther back. Mind-blowing, because he's not bound by space or time. We might understand this as God being transcendent, because nothing can contain him. This also means that God is simple. Now, that's not simplistic. Understand that. What do we mean by simple? Well, he has no material parts because he is a spirit which is immaterial. So he's not a complex piece of machinery of which cogs and belts and all these things happen. You need everything to go in order to make this be the product of that. He's not complex in that way because he's not material. But What does that now do for our thinking when we think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God became man? All of a sudden, you find that you have much deeper reasons to worship God for what he's done because he actually steps out of the material and he steps into the material for our sakes. Completely different way of thinking. And Colossians 1, let's turn there real quick. Is everybody still with me? Okay. Because I was putting this together and I thought, man, I'm really excited about this sermon. And when I'm excited about it, it means that y'all usually hate it. So it's okay. I'm thankful that it's boy. No, don't play. I can take it. I'm a big boy. It's okay. I'm have my mother send all of you a card. Just kidding. It's a joke. Colossians 1 verse 15. Speaking of Christ, who is God, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of of the invisible. He is the scene of the unseen. God wanted to make himself known to you and I in an incredibly tangible way. And Jesus manifested is the way that he did. Did Jesus always exist in the Old Testament and beforehand? Absolutely, because he's God. He can't not exist. But there came a time when Jesus was put forward in order to catch our attention. And we get to see what God is tangibly like in ways that we can begin to grasp through that. Notice, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I thought you said he wasn't created. He's not. Firstborn is a title. It's a right. It's a privilege. He is preeminent above all. He has first rights beyond anything that's ever been created is the idea. Uh, Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. Do you think Jesus was needed for creation? Indispensable part. Yes, he absolutely was. Notice, for by him all things were created, 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are all celestial rankings, kind of like we have sergeant, corporal, lieutenant, all those things. These are spiritual, demonic, and angelic rankings. All of these things unseen were absolutely created. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Now watch this. He is before all things. There's His eternality. His pure actuality. He existed before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Now we talk about being in Christ when we believe. Notice this is talking about on a greater scale than just the body of Christ. All things are located in Him. This is His immensity. All things are in Him, yet He is not smothering anything by His presence. Everybody with me? Isn't God deep? Okay. He's either deep or I'm full of it. You think one thing or another. I don't know. So here we go. What is our application of this? How should we think about the idea of what it is for God to be one and how that really presses upon our need to be unified, to strive for unity? Well, first, I would say rejoice. Because you know the God of all creation, the transcendent Father, and He loves you immensely. There is not one person in all of His creation that He does not have an overwhelming and absolutely perfect affectionate love for at all times. That is the Gospel. That's why He sent out the rescue party of His Son to pay the price and to buy us back out of bondage. Pondering this creates a love for God in the heart of the believer. Let me say this real quick because you might This might not settle with you well, even though I've said it before, but it's true. And you might sit here and think, good grief, that's a lot of information about God. Why in the world would I ever possibly need to know that? Here's the reason why. is because not every Christian loves God. I think that's really important to say. When we hear the message of salvation, we're thankful for what has happened. You know, it's through the preaching of the gospel that faith is imparted to a believer or a person. They can now exercise that. But not all people love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why would Jesus have to command that of people if it was automatic every time somebody believed in Him? He commanded it because it was the right direction to go. How do you love God more? You receive the Word of God here, Holy Spirit moving it here because you're believing it, and it comes out here. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not every Christian loves Jesus. Every Christian needs to be in a love relationship with Jesus. But just because we find ourselves enraptured in sin, not growing in Him, not knowing Him more, maybe being real thankful and real excited about Jesus, but not in this deep, love, selfless relationship with Him, it doesn't change the fact that God already deeply, personally, and selflessly loves you. That is the crux motivator for why we would want to get more and go deeper in this relationship with Him. So, hopefully... Information like this as we begin to ponder the different facets of like who God is and why we should strive for this unity because He is one, is so that it will bring us into, if we've not experienced that, into that greater love relationship with Him. It needs to go from knowledge to practicality. And that begins serving itself out as obedience. Number two, our call to preserve the unity of the Spirit is given with this final reason. God's not divided. Therefore, His people shouldn't be divided. God is the indivisible God. We often pray to our, pray with our flag, right? One nation, indivisible. I think we need to stop for a second. And maybe think for a moment. Because that's not where it's being pushed. Satan is moving this to a great divide. 
And the divide may come from every other perspective you think it might be, depending on the issues that you might care most of, because we all come to it with the bias. But I think objectively, we could say that the biggest problem that we're going to have is the fact that there is an almighty creator who sent his son to die for all these sins that we see accumulated with people. And people would rather reject him and take up arms to defend themselves and to, and to cause, create, cause havoc, create havoc. Am I saying it's wrong to defend yourself? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is we're often wanting to go about it so much in our own way that God has become an afterthought in how we live or think. His love for us is not what is being proclaimed. And it is most clearly seen through His Son on the cross for us in our place. That is a message that we have got to be telling people. Why? Because the wrath of God is coming. There's only one rescue out of it. It's not a new government. Now, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm going to prophesy something. The next government is going to be the same as what we got now. It's going to look different. It's going to have shades that might be different. Maybe a different animal's there, and maybe a different animal's not. But here's one thing that I know. They're probably going to smell the same. Number three. Meditate on God as the Scriptures portray Him, not the world. The world's got a lot of beliefs about God, wants to tell you a lot of things about God. Well, I think God works this way. There is usually no basis in that type of knowledge. Because it's all whatever tickles my button. I want a God that tickles my button. That's what my sinful heart wants. I want a God that I can control. I want a God that I can put one of those dog catcher things on and make sure that He only goes where I want Him to and He doesn't get too close to me. I want to make sure I keep Him arm's length. Recognize that that's a futile fight. Creates a lot of energy. Creates a lot of tiredness. You'll be exhausted when you're done with it. But the fact is, is we need to be thinking about God biblically. We need to saturate our thoughts about Him with the Word. The Word of God is the only suitable substance that corrects every wrong thinking that we would ever have and generates right thinking about God and what He is like. The greatest thing about a person, Tozer said, is what we think about when we think about God. What do you think about when you think about God? If it's not biblically upholdable, I don't even know if that's a word, but if it's not, it should be. And how does that need to change in our lives? Let's pray. God, I thank You that You tell us clearly and plainly about Yourself, even though some things are unknowable, even some things are beyond understanding, beyond comprehension. Father, how we need our thinking corrected or enhanced or built up or encouraged. Lord, You want us to know You. That's what the Bible is. It's an, it's an incredible invitation that says, please come know Me. And you make those details about yourself known. Lord, I pray that we would confess to you very plainly ways that we've tried to fit you into our grid. Maybe ways that we've put you second tier because of the wants or the emotions that we have about a given subject. Father, we need to receive your teaching so solidly. We need to have our noses buried in the Word of God and know it inside and out so that we will be developed properly, mature properly, handle the adversity of this world properly. It's going to come. But we've got to handle it on a grace basis with the confidence of an Almighty Father who loves continually without fail. Lord, how that needs to be ingrained within our very beings. So Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would speak to each one of our hearts this morning. 
about the adjustments that are necessary. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.